His name is Heston Blumenthal. He is one of the most inquisitive and creative chefs on the planet with a knowledge of food quite unlike anyone else. And now Heston is taking us on a journey to the centre of food, deep inside ingredients and dishes we all recognise, but to reveal the hidden secrets inside them and hopefully change how we view our cooking and eating forever. Hello Heston, how are you doing? Hello Jay. I'm doing very fine, thank you very much. You? Oh, that's that's very. I'm I'm very fine indeed. I'm looking on the wall behind you, and you have a a very ornate looking sort of bull's head made of metal. That's very cool. Yeah, it's it's like the hunting without the hunting, if that makes sense. So it makes sense. Do you know? I went. I took my my bike up with a friend up the mountains here the other day, and they've started the hunting season. And there's there's men with orange fur jackets in the middle of the woods, and you can hear the old bang going off. And I cycled past probably, I don't know, three or four groups of two or three people over the course of a couple of kilometres. They all look so miserable. And I turned to my <laughs> friend and I said, surely, I don't get hunting. I do understand if you, you need to kill an animal for the purpose of eating. I get that. But to kill an animal just for the purpose of killing an animal is just something I can't get my head around. So you think, well, these people are hunting. Uh, most of them won't be doing anything with the, with, with the meat. And they look so miserable. So yeah. please tell me what the point. What is the point? I was very happy on my bike, and I didn't fall off. <laughs> there again, you'd feel e- you'd feel equally uneasy if a load of guys went past you with guns and like maniacal grins on their faces. I imagine that would be slightly unsettling as well. Uh, yes, but this is for future for fu- a future podcast. If any communication connection with food, the happier it is. That's the essence for me of the food chain. Oh, so happy hunters. Love and gratitude with your food. We have to, I mean, face it, we have to eat to live. And we eat plants and we eat meat and we eat fish, not all of us do, and we eat fruit. And they're all living things. So if we can appreciate more, um, that that for me is the ultimate food chain. But this was a pretty miserable bunch of men. Maybe that was something to do with their domestic lives, I don't know. Wonderful. On that note, we are joined by our Fat Duck producer, James, who will be keeping us on the right side of facts. Hello, James. You seen any grumpy hunters this week? No, I'm grumpy hunter free this week. So good to see you too. James might have his work cut out today. I have a. F- it's I, a big I, subject. Sure. Oh, my word. Yes, we're, we're going to be with... delving into a very big subject this week. But before we do that, we've had some, some messages coming in uh, off the back of our Sweet Shop episode that we did a couple of weeks ago, which was a lovely sort of a wash with nostalgia. So I do, I do urge you to go back and listen to that if you haven't. And it seems to have struck a chord with a couple of people. Um, Heston, I was just going to share a couple with you. First one says, hi, Heston, Jay and the gang. I thought you might be interested in this. I was listening to your podcast while I run and it's incredibly emotive. I'm not sure if you want an emotive podcast when you run. I hope she's not getting too emotional while running, yeah, but it, it I, just I, finished. I differ there. I think that's wonderful. Oh, you want, <laughs> yeah. think you're liking them? Okay. And I just... Otherwise, you don't like those, those hunters. They're all misery. <laughs> You could, we could have got some more listeners. You should have shop, stopped and recommended the podcast to them. <laughs> uh, she carries on. It just finished, and I was listening to the John Hurt soundtrack when I walked into Sainsbury's, and what did I see but this? Panini stickers. Uh, she says, oh. I have no idea what they are, but they seem to be on a new football magazine, so maybe go and see if they smell the same. Oh. I hope this has sparked some of your nostalgia or brightened your day a bit. Thank you, Maddie. I didn't realise they still did them. Maddie, that's so exciting. Now... Jay, can I can I ask you for a favour? I will go and send you some today. Yes, because we won't. We're, I'm not going to know if they're going to smell like my memory of them without smelling them. If that makes sense. 
Of course. I'll have a sniff first, and then I'll package... Well, I'll send you an unopened pair, yeah. a packet, because I imagine it doesn't it doesn't smell the same once it's open. But if they do, that'll be wonderful. I yeah. The football stickers themselves, I imagine, are going to be quite different to the sort of Ian Rush sort of sticky back ones we had. But oh, it'd be great if they smelled the same. Oh, the smell. My God. That's exciting. My knees are bouncing up and That's down. That's wonderful. Now. That's a great way to <laughs> get going. <laughs> Maddie, you've got Heston's knees bouncing up and down, which is always a, a good sign. And the uh, secondly, we had a message on our Instagram, which is at Heston's podcast. So do drop us a line if you have anything you want to uh, tell us. This one is from Gastromino, which is a, a brilliantly titled Foodie Kylie Homage page, uh, which is amazing because I was trying to find the person's uh, actual name and I just came to their site, which is, which is amazing. The name on the Instagram is... Pr- pro prow um but this is following on from a question Hester and i when we were doing the the, the uh, sweet shop episode we were curious if the emotive sweet shop memories that we all have from our, our sweet shops in britain transferred to uh, other countries we, we specifically asked about australia yeah. and luckily we've had a, me- a, a reply so in oz having grown up in the burbs back when uh it says one c and two c i presume that means one cents and two cents pieces were still around yeah I'd get off the bus from school at the local service station. On the bottom two shelves near the register were open boxes of loose lollies, milk bottles, strawberries and cream, which I, re- I recognise all those, and then something called musk sticks. Never heard of that before. Um, red frogs, raspberries, you'd get a small p- paper bag and count them out, always, of course, adding a couple of extra. Recently, I was delighted to discover new iced coffee-flavoured bottles, yum, News agents carried package treats like magic gum with popping candy that turned into chewing gum and hubba bubba bubba gum. Good times. Good times. Uh, so that's great, right? Yes, that's fantastic. I can almost, well, I can, I can hear that little rustle of that paper bag as the, as the, as the sweets and all the delights sort of plop in. And the fact that it was in a service, you notice at the start they said it's in a service station yeah. as well. So it's exactly mm-hmm. as we spoke about. A really probably un-nostalgic, um, emotional sort of place, but with just these wonderful memories now to that Yeah, to completely. Oh, fabulous. I'd love to know. James, can you f- possibly figure out what a musk stick is? Because that sounds very unlike a sweet... With, with, a, uh, with a K, a musk. Yeah, or is it yeah. musk. <clears throat> I've heard of oh. them only because but, I think somebody else has told me about them, but I, I, I've never seen them and I've certainly never tasted them. They appear to be a popular confection in Australia and New Zealand, available for <laughs> many different suppliers. They consist of a semi-soft stick of fondant, usually pink, yeah. And often extruded with a ridged cross section in the shape of a star. Their flavour and aroma is quite floral, reminiscent of musk perfume. They're also ah. called musk or musk lollies. Oh, that, yeah, that's going to go on my hit list, or my wish list, yep. or my, my bucket. My, I'm not going to have a brown paper bag, I'm <laughs> going to have a bucket for my sweet shop. <laughs> panini football stickers and musk sticks please do something <laughs> and uh we do want to uh, genuinely uh we love getting your messages and stuff so um do email in uh, heston's podcast at gmail.com or our instagram uh at heston's podcast yes please great. please keep them coming it's fantastic so that's enough sweets because in today's show we are once again deep diving into an ingredient so Heston, please reveal which ingredient or which type of food we are journeying to the centre of today. We're going to scratch the surface. We won't get under the skin because it's too big a subject, but we're going to scratch or attempt to scratch the surface on mushrooms. Mushrooms and fungi. Of all the things we've spoken about, I've always found mushrooms one of the most sort of mysterious. I mean, maybe it's because there's such a wide variety out there, but it's also the fact that it's always laced with a bit of a you're not quite sure there's a bit of danger involved when you see mushrooms out and about right? exactly i think if you were i mean i 
you know only to Roger the amount of hours we spent together traveling the world and and and, and me putting sometimes <laughs> slightly strange things in my mouth the one thing all the time oh, okay all the time <laughs> the one thing i would never do the one the what the, the or the one the most obvious um uh, ingredient thing in nature that we cook with that I would not just automatically put my, in my mouth is a mushroom. If I saw a mushroom on the ground, even though it looked like a mushroom that I think, okay, I know what this looks like. There's so many species. It's a very fine line between um, something potentially beautifully delicious and something that might send you to hospital. Uh, and I think that I was fascinated by the whole sort of world of how the evolution of taste and flavor perception developed and ultimately we need to eat food to live. If we don't eat, we die. <clears throat> so imagine we're a band of merry men and women and kids, a uh, small band going back thousands of years, a, a, a hunter-gatherer tribe, and we're starving. So we're all working really hard to keep each other going and alive and energized with the food that we find and we hunt and we gather and we come across some mushrooms. Well, somebody, somebody is going to have to have a go first. Yeah, and someone's going to put that in their mouth. Yeah, how many people you. succumbed to an early ending because of <laughs> to, to bring us the food that we got today? And I, I know we've touched on this before, but one thing that they all the pharmacies do in France is they offer a a mushroom service. So if you if you've gone foraging, gone for a walk, pick some mushrooms up, just take them into the pharmacy. Now I don't know if there's any insurance policy against. Um, <laughs> Slightly yeah, less than professional uh, mushroom diagnostic system from a pharmacist. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, they, they can tell you whether you can eat them or not. And I, That's a quite exciting mm. idea, though. The idea, because I, I, I find them the most alluring looking things. But the idea that you could grab a load and then someone will tell you if they're all right is yeah. brilliant. We don't well, have that over here, obviously. I mean, they can be delicious. They can make you very ill. You can hallucinate with them. They can enhance your oxygen intake. Uh, they can apparently, lots of Chinese medicine um, states, they can apparently extend your life. It, it's a weird and wonderful world, the world of the mushrooms. And as you said, you know, just the form, the classic form of a mushroom, like a mushroom cloud, the way that they grow up. And when we see a mushroom, we don't realise that that is just the sort of ending of what's underneath. What do you mean? So if you imagine under the ground, how do all the trees and the plants communicate. They connect by pollination, they connect by you know, d having different fruits and flowers that the insects and birds and stuff and other animals can, can pollinate. But the biggest communication comes from under the ground. So if you think about the roots of a tree, yeah. they're very similar to the vein network in a human being, the way they grow. So under the ground, all the lots, many tree roots connect and it's the fungi network, the mushroom network, that feeds off this connection. And, they f and, and so you can have a whole... The, apparently, James, I will need your expert help here because I always forget the name. The largest living thing on the planet is a fungal network. In America, it's about 20,000 hectares. Or no two and a half thousand hectares or something and it's meant to be one living thing and it's called james i believe it might be armillaria solid solidipedes 
solidipes. That's what it is. It's called the humongous fungus. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> More precisely, it is, James. It's a specific honey fungus measuring two and a half miles across in the Blue Mountains in Oregon. It's thought to be the largest living organism on Earth. On Humongous Earth. fungus. But imagine this one thing. There's a guy called Paul Stamets, who's a very famous mushroom guy. He's done a great TED Talk, actually. And his whole TED Talk is really about how these fungal networks communicate. The plants communicate, and he, what his point is, the communication network in the, in the way that it forms and evolves is very, very similar to how human beings have evolved the IT network. So you and I are talking from different countries through a load of satellite connections. And it models the same uh, system of growth, of connectivity, as these fungal networks. And then in the, is this intentional, do you think? Is it humans well, or is it just because we've got different oh, sort of is, failure points with the no, net? This is the big question, you know, is are we just, are we, are we having similar motivations to the way that plants and, and other living creatures on this planet evolved in order to communicate? Because a species that, is, that can communicate more efficiently generally is a species that becomes, um, survives longer. Or, or survive stronger, huh. depending on how you how you measure it. So this, if you think another thing, imagine now. So now we're under the ground. We'll come when it comes to cooking. We're going to focus a bit more on the on the on the on the um, air side, so, um, on the air side side of mushrooms. But underground is all the mycelium, all the veins, all communicating, connecting, and they feed off tree roots and plant roots. Now, imagine, imagine. Your brain, my brain, human brain. And we've got obviously many different areas of the brain, but there's a big lumpy bit at the front and the bit and a lumpy bit at the back. The frontal cortex and the anterior part of the brain. Now, apparently, when we imagine things, and this is quite uniquely human on the face of it, we can imagine things that don't exist. So if I say to you, or anyone listening imagine um a three-legged giraffe with a bowler hat and a walking stick or a cane smoking a pipe not very <laughs> not very politically correct what i'm about to say but it's just my in a classroom teaching physics to um children or tortoises <laughs> we you can imagine it so you think well how i can imagine it. and i think there's a whole there's a whole session with a psychologist to figure out how you imagined it but, <laughs> but they just made, they're made up connections that we can imagine so how can we do that it's because this this connection between the front and the back of the brain through a load of electrical signals so like a telephone uh telephone wire or me and you talking i talk you listen you to a guy listen to and fro we're all connecting and then we're bombarding james with tasks of of research and needing his words of wisdom. So this is all, these are all system, mechanisms of communication. So this bit from the front to the back, imagine all the, all the neural pathways, so the sort of vein tube highway network in the brain, and there's millions of these pathways, they connect like a light switch. You turn, you press a button, your light comes on. But it only comes on because there's a connection between the button and the light switch. So these pathways, neural pathways, can have a coating, they're called myelin. So think of myelin as the plastic coating of an electrical cable. Right. It's sort of like a, 
fatty tissue. And the more layers of myelin that you have on these connections in the brain, the more superhighway information gets passed. So it like slides down. It's a bit like you, the more layers, the faster it shoots. And that communication between the front and the back and imagining things that don't exist is called myelination. And there is a very big connection between those pathways in the brain and that network underground that, in, that, 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 that joins so many plants and trees together through this fungal network. Now, how does that connect to mushrooms? Well, imagine you've got all these veins under the ground that connects all the plants and they all talk to each other in their own way through signals. Um, then when they pop up above the ground, if you take a base of a mushroom, so imagine a classic white button mushroom. And the base is the, the is stem. stalk? or is The stem. Okay, so yeah. it's like a, like a tree. You've got your cap um, and you've got your base. Now, if you cut that base vertically, you can see thousands of little strands compacting the compacted strands that make the base of the mushroom up. And when they get to the top of the mushroom, imagine like a vortex goes the other way. Boom, you get a mushroom cloud. Think of the mushroom cloud from an explosion. It, it spirals, it goes up, and then it loses energy, and then it comes over in a cap. And so all those little strands, are they're all connected. That's part of the, the mycelium. And so these networks, just like those neural pathways in the brain, um, are, are, they're ones that communicate. So we, there's a lot of connection, apparently, between our imagination and, and, and the way that the different brain parts of the brain communicate to each other and the way the brain communicates to the rest of the body and the way that plants communicate under the ground. I love the fact there's so much of this, We obviously the stuff in our brain we haven't seen, but the fact that there's so much of this under the ground. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously I'm aware that trees have huge roots and when you ever see a tree's roots, it's remarkable. But this feels bigger and much more mysterious I mean, it could be part of the reason i suppose that as, as humans we've always sort of associated mushrooms with kind of fantastical fairy tale characters because we probably always looked at them in a sort of slightly mysterious way yeah, you know what, what are sure these things what they could do but in that classic alice quote uh, alice in wonderland quote yeah, i'm not sure what's gonna i know i don't know what but i know i come with the exact quote quote i'm not exactly sure what but i know something might happen when when i eat this and certainly with mushrooms, I think it applies to more than any other food I can think of. So, Hester, I'm just going to pause there for a second to say to you, can you whore star sopcock? Which, of course, I'm sure you know what that means. Uh, that is Norwegian for, can I have a big mushroom, please, chef? The reason I've suggested that to you is obviously, I think it's important for us all to ask, be able to ask for mushrooms in Norwegian, but we are always here looking to partner up with people that we think uh, our listeners might be interested in. And uh, for all of you out there who have always wanted to visit a different country but didn't want to feel like an outsider because you didn't know the language... There's a site and a company called Babbel here to help you lo- learn the language. So you can ask for mushrooms in, in any language you really like. Have you always been in love with French, Spanish, German, Italian culture, but you don't have time to attend language courses? Well, the good thing is there is now a clear and simple interface that guides you through your learning journey in a funny and smooth way. Babbel is designed to get you quickly speaking a new language within 10 weeks with daily 10 to 15 minute lessons. Babbel teaches real conversations through interactive dialogues and they have speech recognition technology that helps you improve your pronunciation 
and accent. Lessons are lovingly created by over 100 language experts who are real people, apparently, and not just a translation machine. And you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, and of course, Norwegian. Uh, and the good news is they've got this really cool deal here. Right now, Babbel is offering all our listeners uh, six months free with a purchase of a six-month subscription with the promo code HESTON. Uh, that's H-E-S-T-O-N, like the service station. Go to babble.co.uk forward slash play and use the promo code HESTON to get a free six months on your subscription. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.co.uk forward slash play, promo code HESTON, and you too could be asking for mushrooms in any language you like. Right, back to the story sopcock. We've been on some um, interesting voyages of discovery together. Do you remember the time that we went to the forest to try and get you to try magic mushrooms? Oh yes, I remember that very, very well. And and, and they, the red and white, what are the red and white ones? The classic um, uh, toadstool. Oh, wasn't it? Yeah, that red and white mushroom, which is incredibly hallucinogenic, but also incredibly <laughs> potentially poisonous at the same time. But, he, but the forager, I know you're saying it, the forager took us into the forest and he found them and they were exactly like you described there, which is uh, what I hadn't ever seen before in a forest. It was like a fairy tale mushroom. It was red yeah. and white yeah. and incredible. Uh, frustratingly, though, you never got to try it, did you? Because the guy was convinced it was perfectly safe. But the insurance company, because we were going to go, oh, should we? Yeah. you and I had a, quite a few of those conversations. Should we just do it? Should we just do it and not tell them? We've t- been told it's completely safe, but the insurance company have a big stick and we're not happy about I, the idea. Yeah, don't you remember? There was you something dying. about all the mushroom experts that we spoke to. It wasn't a football stadium load of them, but there were more than two. <laughs> uh, said, said that if you, um, I think... You cook them. There was a way of cooking them where you could keep the slightly dreamy effects of the mushroom and eliminate the dangerous effects. But and I can understand why the insurance company um, and the <laughs> and Channel Four weren't having any of it. So we uh, we did we did we were responsible citizens. And then we because we thought, how can we bring in this, that mush? It was a, that sixties um, feast. So there was a psychedelic element to it. Remember. How are That's we going to bring the psychedelic element in without consuming a hallucinogenic um, <laughs> substance? Actually, if you think, but then what we did was you think about the results of something hallucinogenic. Maybe you see things in a different way, you hear things in a different way. You're still you, but not in the same way that you know, your relationship with what's around you is still there. It's still you, but it's not in the same way as you're used to. So what we did was we, we I remember we had that dish which was a jelly like a cons, jellied consomme of mushrooms with a mushroom cream on the top and we put that in moss. Now um, that I'll come back to my hold that thought because that's this has another important connection the moss and the moss in the woodlands by tree roots and stuff like that which is connected to the growing environment of these particular types of mushrooms. And I remember we got this little Inoki, tiny little Japanese um, star mushrooms that we hand painted with beetroot, uh, and and what I, what was the white? It certainly wasn't Tipex. It might have been a little <laughs> drop of white chocolate or something. It was cream. It was like a little mushroom cream. And yeah, that's it. We I remember we had to, had to have one of those jeweler's little eyepieces on because the mushrooms are so small. So you put those in. Then we thought, well, how are we going to make people feel like they're on a psychedelic trip? 
not exactly knowing what a psychedelic trip is, but that's myelination, that's your imagination. Let's imagine what a psychedelic trip could be like. So we then found this gas, remember, which was called something um, hexa, something... Wasn't it heavier than... Yes. Heavier than air. So it was helium is is lighter than air. So when you inhale helium, it it basically um, it makes your voice go really light, really high. Sulfur hexafluoride, and, I think. You're uh, that's it. Thank you very much. What was it? Alpha? Did you say alpha hexafluoride? No, sulfur. Oh, sulfur hexafluoride. So helium makes your voice go higher. We found this stuff. Or Patrick, the the the. The um, assistant producer researcher at the time found this sulfur hexafluoride, which does the opposite. It sort of sits, it's really heavy. It? It's heavier than any. It sat in the base of your stomach and it's like that. <laughs> and we made these mushrooms. It was like, a, imagine a, a wooden stalk. It had like the, the, the stalk of the mushroom was, was made from wood and there was a flat, like a little flat wooden disc on top. And then we stretched a balloon over it, painted red with white dots. And that, that stalk had a hole in it where we attached a tube. So you could pump up, pump this gas, this sort of deep voice gas into this mushroom stalk. And the balloon expanded. So it looked like a mushroom. So you had the bowl with the mushroom jelly and the mushroom cream and all the little mushrooms that were, that were painted to look like the, you know, the red and white, those red and white mushrooms and we made edible leaves and stuff like that all sat on a bed of moss and then the guests had to suck on the gas and all of their voices went really deep yeah. and slow and i remember doing one of jonathan one of one the my jonathan ross interviews and i took two bottles on the show and we called it fur um furlong did you Fur, was it Pat? Was name Furlong Gas? Because yeah. of Patrick. Patrick Furlong was that was, was Patrick Furlong. Yeah, he, yeah. he's on the so We <laughs> called it Furlong Gas on the show, and uh, and Jonathan basically consumed a whole bottle and he started talking, which like is it. hugely dangerous as well. Oh, <laughs> it was so funny. Then they did they cut they cut this bit out of the of the show just before. Um, hang on, I'll have to remember the name. So there was Will Young, as a great band. James, can you look at, it's called History with Will Young. The band live in Ibiza. I did some big club checks. They're, they're a cool band, big foodies. Um, it's History. Groove Armada. Groove Armada. So basically, Will Young was before singing a song with Groove Armada at the end of Jonathan Ross show. And you know how high-pitched Will Young's voice is? Yes. Jonathan decided to give him some furlong gas. So he Did started he? the song just after he took this gas. Imagine it was, it was, they cut it out. It was so funny. Oh, that's fantastic. It was so funny. Oh, it's such a shame they cut that out. Yeah. Oh, I, your, your forensic memory, people probably don't know this about you, but your forensic memory for food is amazing. The fact you remember all that, I, I can't even, I can picture the dish roughly, but the fact you remember what was in it is amazing. That's, so you said to remind you of moss. Why am I reminding you of moss? Ah, yes. So we talked about moss and we've got the dish that we talked about, the, the walk in the woods. That, with that dish, we've got truffle toast. So truffle is a fungi. A white truffle is not. White truffle is more connected to the potato family. It's a tuber. 
But black so truffles are fun. I didn't know that. They're, they're completely different species. Good work. I didn't know that at all. That's really interesting. Yeah, white truffle is, is potato, family, and the black truffle is a fungi. A lot of the characteristics of a truffle is to do with um, micro, my, the microbacterial uh, activity. All of, that gener- gener- all of that energy creates gases, a bit like, you know, when we have wind. It's our microbes getting very, very busy. That's one of the reasons. And that, that, that activity generates the classic truffle smell that pigs and dogs for example go mad for but they feed off they're around the roots of trees and oak trees with moss around so this whole connection with uh, and it comes from the activity under the ground not above the ground the fungi and the plants underneath the soil form relationships which allow one species to benefit from the other so mushrooms can't generate their own food so what they do is they form a sometimes parasitic, sometimes more collaboratively, yeah. you know, a relationship with, with the plant. So but the plant generates the sugars, which the fungi then extracts from the plant. Meanwhile, the fungi will perform another function, and that could be protection. It could be signaling. It could be helpful you know, in, in the propagation of the, of, the, of the seed body or some. It, you know, it varies from species to species, and, and the truffle is one of those fungi. So it, 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 it basically lives amongst the roots and, 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 and things underground. It's, it's um, um, mycelium interacts with the, the roots of the trees yeah, to it, do things for it. It feeds off and feeds then, doesn't it? Yeah, they live together as one. They form they a separate it? thing. Endosymbiosis, effectively, isn't it? Or yeah, symbiotic? I mean, it's, yes, it, I mean, well, it is symbiotic, yes. I'll tell you what, the truffle is certainly doing it. A, a, a majestic task for humankind if they're prepared to pay the money for fine dining for fine dining yeah <laughs> got some money uh, truffles you bet <laughs> truffles there for you so I, it's, it's like our relationship with trees trees take trees breathe out uh, or produce um, oxygen we breathe in the oxygen we breathe out CO2 the trees take in the CO2 and they breathe out oxygen and that is a very similar it's a, it's a very similar it's a symbiotic relationship um, does anyone does anyone ever produce is it is it so complicated in this relationship that people can't because obviously knowing how expensive truffles are and how sought after yeah, they, yeah. is there anyone out there who makes them i mean literally they, creates now, the process they farm there's been an, over the last maybe 25 years people have been farming truffles but until recently truffle farming farm truffles were pretty terrible and i suppose the probably the first country to be able to successfully farm truffles has been australia particularly in the sort of um, western part of Australia, big truffle farms, and Australian truffles are wonderful, and they are, they're beautiful. Uh, they, are, they happen to be at least the same price <laughs> as the Perigord ones, sometimes more expensive, but they are now farming, uh, as somebody's actually, some, somebody's actually grown truffle in a lab, but they have had a problem with the flavour because you're not getting the complexity of the, of the, the bacterial activity. Because when you said you're farming them, you mean farming them as in they'll, they'll have trees and they'll instigate the growth needed yes. around them in <clears> sort of damp earth. Right. But it's curious. They can start to try and make them in the labs now and they'll get... Because they I suppose better. the reward is such. What about white truffles? Are they grown at all as well? No. Oh, well, I say no. Um, I'd love to stand to be corrected because maybe there is somebody now, but up to a couple of years ago, no, the, the white truffles come and go quite quickly. So they're, 
they can grow pretty quickly in the soil and the people that, that I mean, they, they guard their areas vehemently for black truffle, but white truffles secret. The man, normally they have their, their very close associate little, uh, little friend, the dog, and you have those spores tend to grow in the same place. So when you found, when you found a, a little truffle area, might be a very small area, it might be you know, just a square meter or something, they tend to regrow in the same area. So you don't want other people to know where your, where your truffle is. I remember once, this is with Matthew Fault, um, who was Mark Hicks was on this trip, we went to a trip to Italy. And one morning we went to, I think there's Alba, Asti and another village, a triangle of villages where, which is white truffle territory. And the white truffle season is shorter than the black truffle season. And the white truffles are two to three times the price. So when, if let's say this year, the black truffle might be 1,500 pounds a kilo, 1,200 pounds a kilo, white truffle, you might be looking at 3,000. Good and, lord, yeah. that is crazy. It is. I didn't realise they were that expensive. Well, especially if you just go out with a little dog and find, and, and find them, then you can make some money. Sorry, James. Yes. I was just going to say, actually, the prices can be even higher than that. So if you're, you're blown away by that, they can go as high as fifty dollars or $60,000 a kilo, which if you think gold at the moment is about $50,000 a kilo. It's, it's yeah. extraordinary, isn't it? Sod this, I'm going to go and start a lab. <laughs> well, as long as we keep wow. our podcast going, then that's okay. Um, <laughs> but they, I remember we were sitting at about eight o'clock in Asti on the village square, a very classic little Italian um, town. It was, it was damp, it was cold and, and sort of damp and crisp. Um, and they were just coming back from their, their truffle hunting. I think... I think maybe going in the morning when there's still enough sort of humidity in the air helps as well. And we went to this bar. What they had that sitting having a coffee and we were gonna have a meeting with the local, you know, truffle people. And so we were seeing the people coming back from their from their foraging. And this oldish guy, fairly large, with light blue trousers, had rips in them, he had a a rope as a belt, which was tying his trousers up. He had a straw hat that had holes in it and a jumper and jacket and he was he was in the bar and he was knocking back these Paris goblets of red wine I don't know how long he'd been drinking from he was singing out loud bless him he was <laughs> he was drunk and happy and he had this truffle that was kind of the size of a smallish tennis ball now that truffle would be worth if you think about you know let's let's say let's let's say it's three to five thousand pound a kilo this truffle was probably Oh, 1500 quid nice. now considering this guy had a rope for a belt and a straw hat he might have done this for a disguise but he was very happy he got so drunk he got so happy in front of everybody he started singing and he just took a massive bite of this truffle so he's oh no <laughs> oh no this is like eating his earnings yeah imagine the next day <laughs> find all these crumbs all over you I, I that that's the that's the thing i have to admit which you know about me which obviously means i will never be welcome in the in the in the circles of of, of true sort of fine dining foodies i really 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 dislike the smell of truffle and every time i used to come to the fd kitchen i could always tell when yeah. someone opened up in the in the development kitchen i could always tell when someone opened it up i'd like oh Yes, yeah, some, some people don't like that smell. And, and there's something like 25 to 30% of 
people can't actually smell it. They don't. They haven't developed the the connection of the receptors to smell the truffle. That's amazing because it's such a strong I smell. I know. Maybe you're not. I mean, if what you don't know, you won't. Well, you won't miss. And some people don't like it. So. That's part of the beauty of food, I suppose. Yeah, I'm all for the rest of you. More, more, more £50,000 truffles to go round. Uh, hopefully, through through the, what we've taken this chunk of this podcast up, um, talking about is this incredible universe of mushrooms. And we've just scratched the surface. So let's put that aside and, um, and let's go into the kitchen. Now, in fact, um, I still think there's a lot of people that aren't, they don't, for, for whatever reason, either they don't, they're not particularly keen on mushrooms, not massive mushroom fans, and think about them as somehow second-rate ingredients. But one of my favourite, I love the simple butter mushroom. If you, um, so it's so it's closed cap, which means that when the when they grow it in dark, so the cap you don't have a, a, like a field mushroom, portobello mushroom, where you have the big brown uh, ridges underneath don't have those so the mushroom that the, the, the white skin of the mushroom sort of grows around itself and if you slice those silly and chuck them in a pan really quickly they have this incredible um fragrance to them and in fact the classic uh, one of the classic like in italian cooking you have soffritto which is a very finely diced carrots and onions and celery which forms the basis of a lot of pasta sauces in french cuisine you have a dussel d-u-x-e-double-l-e which is basically chopped mushrooms. You can put shallots and, and butter in and you, and you cook that down, chop them finely, cook that down and have it as a base for soups and sauces and butter emulsions and, and, and stuff like that. It's very classic, the duck cellar mushrooms. Um, one of the most pointless things for me personally is a turned mushroom. That doesn't mean it's gone off. What's that? A turned What's mushroom. Turned mushroom? Incredible. So what you do... In very classical French, and people, they were, they were, um, they prided themselves on being able to do this. You take a little paring knife, which is a tiny knife that's curved with a pointy end, and right. you would take the mushroom and you would carve out. Um, how do I explain? Look, imagine looking down on the top of a mushroom cap. It's a circle. Yeah. If you were to then, from the middle of that circle, you draw a crescent to the edge. And you do hundreds of those crescents all around. So you're like a spiral effect. So you okay. carve a groove out of a mushroom. Why did you do that then? <laughs> That's a great question. Exactly. But I suppose because you can. Because <laughs> you can and because you spent a lot of time doing it. And, they, and, and you think it looks beautiful. It doesn't make a difference to the, to the taste. But it's a very, very classical French thing. A turned mushroom. Um, and then they would use these to, to garnish, to garnish the, the, the plates. Um, I oh, see. They're not even cooked. They just—it's just, it's just, no, just carving they're, they're, to look yeah, pretty they, they on the side. They might cook them, but it was really about carving, carving the mushroom. Um, it's like those little turn—is it little turnips? The little, the tiny little. When sometimes you go to a place and they turn them into roses. Oh, the, yeah, Chinese restaurants do. Yeah, it's a sort of the French equivalent of that, basically. I'm giving you a whistle-stop tour of of, of mushroom-related kitchen techniques and facts and 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 ideas. Um, one of you know I. The whole approach of questioning everything, um, browning meat, not keeping in the juices. Another one was, don't wash a mushroom, don't wash them, because they they then absorb water. Well, that's not entirely correct. They don't always absorb water. Some mushrooms don't absorb it at all. And I've weighed them before and after washing. Also, 
when they absorb them, you're going to cook them. And even if they did absorb the water, is that a problem? So what I tend to do, I've always tended to, to, to um, years ago in the duck, I realised that blanching mushrooms, just for 30 seconds to a minute, boil them. Just chuck them in boiling water and then strain them. And you really, the, the texture becomes, they become more dense and you get rid of a little bit of bitterness. Sometimes mushrooms can have this, particularly the wild ones like um, um, giroles and, and mushrooms like that, chanterelles and giroles, they, have, they can have these bitter, slightly bitter notes. So just a quick blanch, then drain them and then saute them. In fact, you know, I... I um, the, that, that, the whole idea of blanching mushrooms sort of went in the face of what classical gastronomy said. And we, we teamed up with this couple of amazing guys that have a company called Fable Foods. And they are just uh, mushroom obsessives. Experts, incredibly knowledgeable, incredibly motivated, incredibly creative. creative. Um, and Jim, who's the one of the directors and also the uh, development chef, great cook, continually asking questions. Um, he did um, an interview on one of the, I think, morning TV shows in Australia, talked about boiling the mushrooms, boil them, and then chuck them in the pan afterwards. And apparently that caused a stink, um, which is quite funny. So, but they're doing, they're doing some incredible work on on. on on the benefit of mushrooms. So again, we'll come back to this later. So you've got mushrooms' effects on prebiotics, how beneficial they are to eat. Also, they contain a lot of, um, some of them contain a lot of umami, particularly the dried shiitake mushrooms, where the Chinese use these, and, and, and the Japanese in, in broths have a lot of umami. So you put those in stocks, and it gives you a real meatiness to the stock. And if you're making a, if you're not eating meat, sometimes you, you might miss the umami taste. It's not a flavour, it's a taste. And it's, it gives a big meaty mouthfeel, but without meat. And mushrooms can supply this in, in, in droves. Um, Is that why mushrooms are often used, you know, certainly 10 years or so ago, before vegetarian food kind of advanced a bit? It was always, my wife was a veggie, so I was always acutely aware that wherever we went in, it was always just a mushroom. Basically, a mushroom with something on it was always the vegetarian option. Is it because it, it sort of acted as a sort of, yeah. it's a go-to <clears throat> meat substitute? And in fact, the very first, one of the first ketchups was mushroom ketchup. I think cucumber might have tipped, tipped it to the, to the finishing line in terms of origin. But mushroom ketchup came way before tomato ketchup. Tomatoes were only started to be eaten around about 16 in the 1600s, they were, they were part of the um, deadly nightshade family, so they were they were used as a medicine, but they were sort of considered a bit toxic, so they weren't really used in cooking. And the story goes that a lot of because the original ketchup was originally called catsup, apparently became favourable in our culture as a result of seafarers, so long trips to Indonesia and Asia. And they discovered sources called catsup, K-A-T-S-U-P. Um, and one of the early forms of that would have been a mushroom catsup. And they were like condiments to add to, to meat, boost your meaty flavour. I think that would be really nice, actually. A mushroom ketchup. I'm sort of imagining what that would taste like in my head. I mean, that would be lovely. That would lovely. Go... We serve one at dinner. 
We've I was going to say, you don't have to imagine it, Jay. You just have to book yourself a lovely table for two with Mrs. Jay and come and enjoy some <laughs> dinner by Heston. And... <laughs> if only we were smooth enough to do that as an actual advert. That sounded brilliant, didn't it? That was very yeah, good. Yeah, that would be a segue. We did, we did, I mean, we did actually do a mushroom ketchup right the early days for, for Waitrose. Um, and this, we're talking about revisiting it because there, I think there were some of the things that we did. You know, 10 years ago, I don't think the world was ready for a mushroom ketchup. Think about somewhere between, I don't mean the flavour of tomato ketchup, but the texture and the, and the sort of mouthfeel of tomato ketchup with Worcester sauce added to it and, and sort, of, sort of slightly yeasty notes. And especially with the mushrooms, a little bit pickled. So you have this beautiful acidity to it. And, and it doesn't, you don't have to put that with your meat. You can, you, can, you can have it if you're vegetarian or vegan. You can have it with that. It gives you the satisfaction. Mushrooms can give you the satisfaction of eating meat without having to eat meat. And for me, to call it a meat replacement actually is insulting to, to the mushroom. It's not a meat replacement, because that sort of says, well, why do you need to replace meat? I'm just not going to eat meat. I'm going to eat these instead. <laughs> did want to add a little anecdotal mushroom fact. It was the first ingredient I can ever remember at the duck, which became the source of bad puns. So when you're working 20 hours a day with a small band of merry men, and you get so exhausted, you just, delirium sets in. <laughs> so, and, it, and we, 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 this happened a couple of times a week. Every time there was a big sort of mushroom duty on one section, somebody come up with, uh, oh, there's not mushroom in here. And then somebody else would say, oh, you're a fun guy. And then, <laughs> oh, you've got no morels. And the other one said, yeah, yeah, but except, um, and they're just- yeah, he's susceptible. Yeah. <laughs> we just carry on, mushroom puns. <laughs> <laughs> they are good for puns, aren't they, mushrooms? They are. I think that's the... Uh, we did promise some mushroom puns in this episode as well, so I'm glad we managed to get to those in the end. On that on that note, that unfortunately is the end of our mushroom episode for uh, another episode of Journey to the Centre of Food, and one that has flown by, Heston, and it feels like we will, as we say most times, going to have to revisit this ingredient because still lots more to be said. But... Um, but for now, that's all we have time for. So, James, thank you ever so much. You've certainly earned your mushrooms this week. Uh, lots of facts being thrown your way. Really appreciate it. And all that's left to say is thank you for listening and goodbye, Heston. Goodbye, all. <laughs>